Anchoring 7.30 has been the most amazing job and I'll never stop being grateful for the opportunities it's given me, all the incredible people that I've interviewed. Lee Sales is a towering figure in Australian journalism and has been the presenter of ABC's flagship news programme 7.30 for almost 12 years. It was so long ago that Donald Trump was just a guy with a bad orange hairdo hosting The Apprentice. She's built her reputation on her forensic cross-examination of Prime Ministers. And joining me now in our Sydney studio is the Prime Minister, Kevin Rudd. Good to have you, Prime Minister. The Prime Minister, Julia Gillard, also agreed to a separate interview today. Prime Minister, welcome to the programme. Thank you, Lee. It's lovely to be here. Are you a dead man walking? But she's as much at home interviewing global celebrities and sporting superstars, such as the cricketer, Shane Warne. Shane, it's lovely to meet you. Yes, nice to be met. She's an award-winning author, a one-time wedding singer. And the co-host of a hugely popular podcast. Lee Sales is operating sans spreadsheet. <laughs> it's just like she's got a wild look in her eyes. As she relinquishes the anchor's chair at 7.30, she's agreed to sit for an exit interview. A wide-ranging conversation that's also a chat between mates. Lee Sales, ABC News, Washington. Full disclosure, we've known each other since we were both Washington correspondents 20 years ago. And a lot has happened since. I'm Nick Bryan, and this is Journo, a podcast from the Judith Nielsen Institute for Journalism and Ideas. Lee, I must admit, when I was prepping for this interview, I was reminded of, of your famed preparation. They they say that you start prepping for interviews sometimes before the interviews are even booked. <laughs> yeah, well, do you know what? At the moment on my desk, I've got two files for people that I fear might die while I'm live on air and that I might have to be able to improvise about. One is Rupert Murdoch and the other one is the Queen. So I have done a bit of interview prep for, for those things, even though they haven't occurred yet. Like imagine, you know, if the Queen died and you're in the middle of a broadcast, like how you'd have to try to switch gears and make sure you hit the right note off the top of your head. So because there are a lot of things in news that you can't control, I like to control the things I can control. How would Lee Sales prep for an interview with Lee Sales? <laughs> um, I think the first thing that I would think is... Okay, she, this person's been interviewed a lot. What can I talk to them about that they would be interested in talking about that maybe they haven't had to talk about a lot? And also you've you've come to this with a big, big head start, which is you know me so you haven't had to build rapport. And that's always the biggest challenge when you're interviewing somebody you don't know and you're walking in, you're trying to warm them, warm them up and make them have rapport. But because we, I, in the prep for me for this, the only prep I did was when I parked a car, I thought oh my God, I've known Nick now for nearly 20 years because you were with the BBC in Washington when I was there for the ABC. And, you know, that, that helps you a lot in the interview because the rapport's already established. And so then, as we're already doing, then we're just having a nice chat. Lee, I want to talk to you about the art of interviewing and, and the preparation involved. I mean, let's give you a scenario. You find out that you've got to interview the Prime Minister of Australia later in the week, let's okay. say. Later in the week rather than on the day, because that's very different. That would all be very concertina. But how do you approach it? Okay, later in the week is fantastic because that's a luxury to have time. You know, time is the key thing. So normally with the Prime Minister and the opposition leader, I have a running file that I keep. And so anytime there's an issue, I don't do any really serious prep at the time, but I just might dump something into the file. So what I might dump into the file might be some paragraphs cut and pasted from a story that might say, for example... Anthony Albanese is going to be facing a big challenge in the energy sector um, and he's promised that he's going to have, you know, more renewables online by the end of the year. And so I'll just throw that into the file. Or if I'm watching something and I have a thought that comes into my head like, 
gee, I mean, does he actually know anything about foreign policy? I can't think that he's actually got any real foreign policy experience. I'll just tap that into the file as a potential to follow up later. And so then if I had a few days notice that I was going to have the Prime Minister, I'd go and get that file. I'd ask my producer to get me transcripts of other recent interviews and press conferences they'd done. And then I'd start going through that and picking out what topics I think might be fruitful to concentrate on in the interview. Once I've identified the topics, then I start whittling it down to questions. Once I've got um, questions, I uh, think about where might the interview go? If I ask this question, how might they respond? And what facts might or data might I need to arm myself with so that when they inevitably say, well, Lee, that's your opinion, I can go, well, actually, let me read to you from page 15 of the budget papers, blah, blah, blah. Um, so I've done all of that stuff. And then once I have all of that research material and I've got the, a draft of the questions, I approach the questions like I approach if I'm writing a story or even a book, which is I edit them to be as sharp and concise as possible and I take out any extraneous words, I put them into the active voice and I try to make them as crisp as I can. And I also think about the structure of the interview and I think what is this interview actually about at its core and questions that don't back, you know, the kind of theme of the interview where they don't quite fit tend to get dropped so that there's a clear kind of core to the interview. And when you're prepping, what is the goal of the interview? Is it to get a headline on the front pages the next day? Is it to produce some political theatre? It depends. Is it to produce great TV? It can be all of those things. And if you can get all of those things in the one interview, you've really killed it. Um, it depends a lot on the interviewee. I had an interview with the Reserve Bank Governor, Philip Lowe. That is very, very rare to get, get him for an interview. Governor, welcome to the program. Thanks, Lee. It's great to be with you. These are your first public remarks since the 50 basis point rise. I wanted to immediately ask, therefore, why did the Reserve Bank go so hard? It was a little bit unexpected. I'm thinking, okay, why is he doing this? Why does he want to do this now? He must feel he has something to say. So if, he, if you think he has something to say, then you're trying to give space. And for someone who's rarely heard from, you want to give quite a bit of space. Then you're also thinking, you know, what are the questions that the average person at home wants to hear the Reserve Bank Governor answer for? So for an interview like that, it's more, a, I guess, a thing like, well, let's just see what this guy's got to say. How's he explaining what's going on? Well, I think the Australians need to be prepared for higher interest rates. For somebody in power, like, say, the Prime Minister or a State Premier, someone who runs a nursing home, it might be more of an accountability kind of interview, so it might have a, more of a degree of conflict or confrontation in it. And then you might also be thinking that you do want a bit of theatre. So, say, with a politician, you might ask a really difficult, tricky question off the top. Like, I know, for example, in the recent last interview that Scott Morrison did with 7.30 in the election campaign, I asked him something like, if you lose on Saturday, who are you going to blame? If you lose, People would be worse off. If you lose, and I want to avoid that. If you lose the election, who will you blame? Well, I, I would always accept the result of, of an election because I trust my fellow Australians. And that was just a pointer to the I don't hold a hose, you know, kind of thing. And it was more, I knew that, of course, he wasn't going to react, but perhaps the look on his face when I asked the question might provide a bit of theatre and a bit of entertainment or make someone at home laugh or whatever. So you are definitely looking for those moments of theatre. And, of course, if it's somebody like Shane Warne or Tom Hanks or a celebrity, then it's all kind of entertainment. Tom Hanks, lovely to have you with us. When you're playing a person who did actually exist in reality, what kind of obligation, if any, do you feel that you have to them? That's a real interesting question. 
Shane, it's lovely to meet you. Yes, nice to be met. I've watched a lot of archive of you preparing for the interview and one of the things that's massively entertaining is often when you take a wicket, very frequently you see the batsmen turn around and look at the stumps because they can't <laughs> believe that they are out. Yeah. I know, I was lucky enough to bamboozle a few. And what you're hoping for is the viewer feels like they're watching a genuinely engaging conversation between two human beings. I think over the past sort of 10 or 15 years, you know, politics has become excessively oppositional. And do you think that political interviewing has become excessively adversarial? I've thought a lot about this. What I think definitely has changed is that facts are contested in a way that they never used to be contested. I can say something and the politician will go, well, that's your opinion, Lee, or Lee, that's just wrong. And it's demonstrably provable fact. And so if you're not addressing reasonable questions head on, you're not persuading anyone at home that they should vote for you. And so say in Australia with the recent election result, I do wonder how much of that is to do with the fact that the way politicians communicate in public doesn't connect with people. There's a lack of authenticity. Because if every question you asked me now I wasn't genuinely engaging with, it rapidly becomes a really boring conversation. And so I think that there's a craving out there in the public for authenticity. I think it's a reaction against, say, things like Instagram, where celebrities have these heavily curated kind of public profiles. It's why people think slip-ups and mistakes are interesting, because it's that craving for authenticity that people are looking for. Prime Minister, thank you for your time tonight. Hope to see you again in the campaign. Thanks very much, Lee. Julie Gillard, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Prime Minister, thank you very much for making time to speak to us on this very busy day. Thank you, Lee. We've spoken about how to prep for an interview with the Prime Minister. There's there's also an aftermath, and it's an ugly aftermath. And I know you don't want to talk in, in great depth about this, but you have been the target of some vicious online abuse. In the past um, two years, police have put two protective violence orders on me in relation to threats from random, you know, people. And there have been a couple of others where police have recommended particular courses of action. And... You know, while I can't say, oh, well, that person was abusing me on Twitter because of, you know, such and such an interview, the reality is that when you create this fantasy world online where I'm some evil person who's out to bring down, you know, particular political leaders or whatever, people who are perhaps vulnerable or suggestible see that, they think it's true, and then they can act on it in real life. And definitely in my career, there's been an uptick in real life threatened violence against me in the past couple of years. I mean, people listening to that, would be alarmed, you know, the police getting involved. Oh, it's, yeah, it's, I won't go into the details of it because I don't want to encourage people, but, I mean, it really genuinely threatening behaviour. Yeah, that's just off the scale. Um, and I wonder, you know, how do we how do we change that? I mean, is it the big, the responsibility of BITAC? I mean... It's really, it's, it's a very, very problematic... Um, Question. I mean, I've chosen to kind of get off Twitter because partly I was just using it less. Um, and then I also just felt like, you know what, I actually don't think this is helping my journalism because I don't believe this is representative of what community attitudes are. Um, and just the kind of negative impact I think it can have on people's mental health is, is really bad. So I think... Um, there is a degree to which you have to just try to remove yourself from harm. And I, I do think as well that journalists can really undermine their own credibility by getting involved in rows on Twitter with complete randoms. Lee, when I was prepping for this, I, I did send you a note asking you to sort of think of some of your favourite interviews. And I, I thought you were going to say Paul McCartney. I thought you were going to say 
Elton John. <laughs> they are all favourites. It means a lot to people and to gay people out there who want it, fight for it. I'm on your side. I've never interviewed someone of whom I'm a bigger fan than you. Thank you for all of those songs and for making time to speak to us. It's just been so unbelievably thrilling. Wow. Yeah, but you said Matthew Lowe. Lowe. Yeah. Tell us, tell us who Matthew Lowe is and why that was so important. The famous people... You do, obviously, ones like McCartney, you know, you remember and they're very, very special and stuff. But to be honest, because you have a parade of famous people come through, they don't always make a lasting impression. And to be honest, I don't even remember every famous person I've ever interviewed. The ones that make a really lasting impression on me are people that are regular people to whom something unimaginable has happened and it's dropped them into the news in a big way and then they have to kind of deal with that. And so often I meet people in that circumstance and I feel just completely humbled and overwhelmed by and kind of encouraged by how they're able to go on. And so Matthew Lowe was a man whose wife, Cindy, was one of the victims of the Dreamworld roller coaster accident, that horrible incident a few years ago where that flume ride malfunctioned and they were just having a beautiful day at Dreamworld with their two kids and she was killed, you know, with the family there. And so then there was an inquest into it and so Matthew decided he wanted to do an interview because, you know, he wanted people to understand safety things, you know, have to be taken care of. He didn't want anyone else, anyone else to go through it. And it was just, he was just a really nice, gentle, ordinary dude who had had the most horrific thing bowled up to him. And he was handling it as best he could, being a single dad to his two kids and shepherding them through this thing. And those people, I think, often just really stick with me, just the, the grace, you know, with those people and the kind of... Um, I don't know, just the, the randomness of life and how things can change, you know, so suddenly. It's a massive hole that's left um, when Cindy left. Um, and I didn't, didn't know how to, how to do it to start with. So it was really just focusing on each day um, and, and spending as much time with the kids as possible. It's it's a lovely interview. Um, it's a very emotional interview. I, I thought you started it beautifully. You just asked him to tell us about Cindy. Yeah, and I think often people people in a circumstance like Matthews often have a lot of different reasons why they might want to do an interview, and that's one of the things before we roll. I'll and you know not even on the day I'll ask them, you know, why why do you want to do this interview? Um, and Sometimes they'll say, because I want people to think of my loved one as more than, you know, the victim of X, Y, Z. Sometimes they want to um, see change affected. So the same people don't, you know, other people don't go through the same thing they've gone through. Sometimes they don't want the person's death to be in vain. There's like a whole lot of reasons people might give. And so if the person tells me what they're hoping to get from it, I'll make sure that the questions are asked in such a way that they feel that they get to make that point. Because what I want at the end of that interview is for them to leave and feel better, um, like they that they feel like they've achieved something by doing that interview. And so if their goal is to do X, Y, Z, and I ask questions that allow them to do that, then, you know, a highly traumatised person comes out of that process and they haven't had further harm done to them. It's been in some way helpful. And so with Matthew, I knew that he wanted to, you know, have the focus on Dreamworld's conduct, but I also knew that he wanted to talk about, you know, his wife and he wanted his his kids obviously would see that interview and he wanted them to think of their mum, you know, as their mum. She was a really amazing person. One of those people that if you ever met her, uh, you'd feel instantly comfortable with her. 
Unfortunately, in our business, sometimes our professional highs come during other people's personal lows. And, you know, that causes a lot of angst, I think, sometimes, because you worry if you interview these people. And there are tears, which we know makes great television. Um, you worry that you're going to be exploitative. But mm. my experience is actually a lot of people find that process really cathartic. Particularly if you're very transparent with them about, um, like I, in those kind of interviews, unlike, say, a political interview, I'll talk to them a lot about the kinds of things I'm going to ask. I'll, I'll say to them, I can't tell you everything I'll ask because what I ask depends on what you say, but roughly I'm going to ask about this. And I'll often assure people that, like, say, in the case of Matthew, even though he was, you know, right there for the accident itself, he doesn't need to be asked about that on camera. Nobody needs to know the actual... We can imagine how horrific that would have been in that moment to be there. That's a job for the coroner to look at what happened in those moments. Nobody needs to see Matthew Lowe have to go into that. And so in his case, I assured him that while we might set up like, you know, it was a lovely day at Dreamworld that I was not going to ask him specifically, what did you see? And then we kind of moved to, you know, this terrible accident happened and then, you know, in the days after, blah, blah, blah. So I try to be very transparent with people about where I'm going to lead them. And I think if you're transparent like that, what happens is people feel that they trust you. And so then they tend to just tell you things in the interview. And then it allows you to sometimes go to places, if you follow where they lead, that if you're a bit less sensitive, you might not get there. So say, for example, I'm thinking of a woman whose mother had died of COVID in one of the nursing homes when they didn't have infection control um, happening very well. And we did an interview and I think in the middle of it, I asked her something like, and I prefaced it by saying, if this question steps over the line, you don't have to answer it. So you're in control of the interview. You don't have to answer this question, and I hope it doesn't seem indelicate. Um, do you know who was with her in her final moments and what happened for her then? From what we can gather, from what they have told us, and the nurse that was helping with the FaceTime, she said, we were with Mum all afternoon, we did her nails, we brushed her hair and we, we fixed her up nicely and we were with her. They said at times they were praying with Mum and they had her rosary beads with her. and So they really took a lot of care for Mum. I think if you're less transparent and then you just bowl that up to somebody in the middle of an interview out of nowhere and they haven't led you to that, they're not going to answer and they're going to feel then exploited. So it's the key thing, I think, is to allow the other party to feel like they're driving it. And if they drive it into really sensitive stuff and they drive it into tears, then they're still the one driving it. You're a naturally empathetic person, but I wonder if your experience of trauma, which you document in this wonderful award-winning book, Any Ordinary Day, um, the trauma of your, the birth of your second child and, and other things in your life that were happening at the same time. I, I wonder if that sort of changed your approach. It's made you even more Definitely. empathetic. <laughs> Massively. I mean, I think the older and the longer you've been on the planet, you're more the more you realise how easily your position could be exchanged with somebody else's. And so that, I think, is the beginning of empathy that you understand that you, you could be the person that these things happen to. And so I think once you understand that, it's much easier to feel that you can kind of connect with people and relate to people who are experiencing trauma. Because you think even things like, say, disability access, if we all genuinely understood the fact that we could walk out of this room and be hit by a car in the street and be in a wheelchair, there would be no places that wouldn't have proper disability access because we'd think about it all the time. It's the fact that we think that we're exceptional that 
that can't happen to us, right? And I mean, again, it's a key thing for journalism, the ability to, to imagine yourself in somebody else's shoes. That's why I think, say, with um, the polarisation around politics, I hate the fact that there's a certain cohort of people who think everything the other side does is evil, like because they disagree with them, that they, therefore those people must be evil. Well, no, they just have a different, they're coming from a good position often, but they just have a different way of viewing the world and different answers to problems. Hello, I'm Lee Sales from the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. Welcome to this town hall style event with the US Secretary of State, Hillary Clinton. Lee, one thing that really impressed me was that when Hillary Clinton stepped down as Secretary of State at the end of the first term of the Obama administration, she held a, a global town hall meeting in Washington. She wanted somebody to moderate it. And rather than go for an American anchor, somebody at CNN or NBC or whatever, she said, let's get that Australian woman from ABC. Let's get Lee Sales. Hello, Lee. Hi, Secretary Clinton. <laughs> Have a seat. Super warm welcome there. Yeah, that was actually, that was incredibly um, flattering and touching that they did that. I mean, she was amazing. And, you know, one of the great thrills for me is that I've also interviewed Monica Lewinsky. And I mean, I'm a real student of that Clinton kind of era of the Clinton presidency. And so to, to have the chance to have spoken to Hillary and Monica, I find amazing. And they're both amazing people, like both incredibly impressive people. Um, and then I did, last year I interviewed Huma, Huma Abedin, who'd been Hillary's longtime kind of right-hand woman. And so I feel like I've, I've, I haven't interviewed Bill Clinton. He's the missing puzzle piece in that Clinton thing. But now Hillary Clinton, I mean, she's an impressive human being. Like, you know, her command of the breadth and depth of her knowledge of all forms of public policy is gobsmacking. And there's a charm, I think, with Hillary. And a charm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That, that, again, you know, she, we did this event in Melbourne together, which was the first time I interviewed her. And we'd been told we'd be allocated before we went on stage a minute and a half to build rapport. And I was so nervous, of course, as you'd imagine. And she walked out and she's obviously so used to having to put people at ease because everyone freaks out that it's Hillary Clinton. And so she immediately started chatting and she was telling me about the previous time she'd been in Australia and how it was when Bill was president and they'd been at Yarralumla at the Governor-General's residence and they discovered that all the kangaroos had been rounded up and relocated from the property because for fears they posed a security risk to the president. <laughs> One of them might kick him or something. Uh, so that was great. She's got a good sense of humour and, as you know, humour builds rapport, you know, really well. So she's one of those people, like any good interviewee, you kind of just have to give a gentle steer and then they kind of, you know, they're off. You spoke about nerves there and I'm fascinated by this because in the TV industry it's almost like Macbeth in the theatre industry. It's You just don't talk about it <laughs> because you're kind of frightened that something bad's going to happen. <laughs> but it's quite something. And, I mean, I felt this when I was doing a lot of TV. I mean, it, it is nerve-wracking and you're always one catastrophic oh. failure away from a kind of career oh, well, that's, <laughs> limiting or ending moment. That's right, or misspeaking, you know, when you're on live TV. Um, yeah, I... That's why I said before about, say, with my interview prep or having, you know, my Rupert file, my Queen file, whatever, there's so much that's out of your control. So any any false sense that you can give yourself that things are in control is helpful on a performance level. So say, for example, I also, I leave my desk upstairs at about two past seven. I go into makeup at 10 past seven. I go into the green room at quarter past seven. I go to the bathroom at 20 past seven. It's really regimented my routine, if it can be, if nothing's happening, after seven o'clock. And it's, it's, 
purely a psychological trick that I'm trying to persuade myself that everything's completely under my control when it's not. And so those little routines kind of help. Or things like if I'm interviewing, if I've got a major interview, there's certain suits I prefer to wear because they're particularly comfortable. And so I feel like, okay, I need I need the black suit. I need, you know, it's just, it's, it's all a big psychological thing. Oh, I had comfort cufflinks and... <laughs> There's a pair of avocado socks that my daughter gave me. And on big news nights, like, you know, the night of the election, I'd wear the avocado socks. I know. It's so, it's so, so weird, isn't it? One of the things I find the most scary is federal election night coverage, because after the first 45 minutes, the rundown's just like a blank slate because you don't know what's happening. And you know, there's a kind of rough outline, but, but you don't have a script, you don't know what the content is and so on. And because what I mostly do is host 7.30, which is a heavily scripted show, that the idea of a rolling, never-ending, unscripted show, I find, you know, really scary. But uh, my friend Nick said to me um, when I was stressing about this most recent election, he said, do a mind map and write down, like, what are the things you fear is going to happen? And then, you know, what are the things that you can do to mitigate against that? And it was actually incredibly helpful to have this visual, because I think once you get stressed, you get kind of tunnel vision and you can often just think about what might go wrong, particularly in the moment when something does go wrong, you can really get stuck on that. Um, So having a visual reminder that I've got options here is really helpful. Oh, hello, this is Annabelle Crabb. And this is Lee Sales. Welcome to our first podcast. Yes, um, I'm trying to think of something more illuminating to say than that, but that just about sums it up. (laughs) (laughs) We were just talking about how it feels like we've just met up together in one of those French hotels that you hire for an hour or something. It seems very... There's something a bit seedy about (laughs) this arrangement. Anyway, um, our podcast is called Chat 10 Looks 3. Lee, I want to talk to you about podcasting because that seems to me where you're you know the two sides of your personality sort of come together and you you do this wonderful podcast it's called chat 10 looks free i mean 75 percent of our audience come from abroad so they they wouldn't know annabelle crab she's a national treasure it's almost like she's a combination of maureen dowd meets Maggie Haberman meets marvellous Mrs. Mabel. Yeah, that's right. Um, meets, um, oh, who's that wonderful columnist in The Guardian? Marina Hyde. Marina Hyde, <laughs> yeah. exactly. Yeah. Very similar. <laughs> yeah. uh, and you have this wonderful podcast. And you were in on the ground floor. You really got into podcasting Yeah, early. It, That was just through accident, Nick, uh, not by design. So Crab and I, uh, we met around 2008, I think, and we just got on well. She's a very smart, funny, uh, engaging person. And we kept saying, oh, we should do, you know, a book together, a TV show together. And we'd have ideas, but we're very time poor because we have between us, you know, five now five children under the age of 15. And so... We ended up saying, well, what could we do that would involve the least amount of time and no prep? And it was, what if we just did a podcast, which these, you know, they seem to be this thing that's coming off. This was back in 2014. And we just talk about culture because she and I are very interested in the arts, books, so on. Um, and neither of us in our day jobs talks about that, cooking. So we just started basically, we used to record on our iPhone, just we would have a conversation about what we'd read, watched, whatever, that week and uh, or that month. And it went from there. And then this strange, we weren't really sure if many people were listening to it. And then this strange thing happened that people would start coming up to us in the street. And instead of talking about 7.30 or, you know, whatever Annabelle was doing, they would be listeners of the podcast. And so we started to then look at the data and we got this sense that it actually had this, you know, much bigger audience than we had been aware of. And then it just kind of went from there. And how do you think podcasting has changed the game? It, it seems to me there's a kind of expectation amongst the audience now that, 
for a start, we'll reveal a lot more of our, our personalities. Oh, yeah. You know, it's a different sort of conversational style. Do you know, when I first started, a, a friend of mine who's a very experienced ABC foreign correspondent said, why are you messing around with your own credibility like this? Because you've got an immaculate record in serious journalism and, you know, are people going to take you seriously if they hear you laughing about TV shows and books and movies, whatever? And I think, you know, the era of the anchor as the, like, kind of godlike figure who just has authority and credibility and no personality really beyond that, that's gone. And so I kind of had this belief that people would by me as a fully rounded human being that I am, as I said, interested in very serious issues and I can be super serious about, you know, intellectual matters, but I can also be silly and have a bit of fun and be interested in, you know, nonsense. And so, and, and you know, fortunately, people do seem to have been happy to go with that. There's nothing wrong other than I just feel a strong sense of it being time to pass the baton to the next runner in the race and to take a break. And the end of an election cycle feels like a good time to move on to something new at the ABC. Lee, what do you think's going to come next? You, you've, you've spoken about your, your love of interviewing. You, you know, you're, you're equally good at interviewing the Prime Minister of the day. And it's worth pointing out, actually, that there have been a lot of Prime Ministers of the day during your oh tenureship. Oh, my God, yeah. I mean, you know, you've had Kevin Rudd, you've had Julia Gillard, Kevin Rudd again, Tony Abbott, Malcolm Turnbull, Scott Morrison, Anthony Albanese, all on your <laughs> yeah. watch, Lee. Yeah. Is there a correlation? <laughs> it's amazing because I think that's all in the time I've hosted 7.30. The whole rest of my career I only had John Howard and Paul Keating. Like, it's unbelievable, really. Um, yeah, what's next? Look, um... I honestly don't know, and it makes me laugh because I keep seeing speculation in the paper about things I'm going to do. Like there's a piece this week that I'm going to host a talk show. It's like, I've not pitched that. The ABC's not offered it. I don't think a talk show would work in the Australian market currently. So there's all sorts of um, speculation, but I honestly, and I'm, I am telling the truth when I say this, I I need to have some leave and have some rest and get some time to think because hosting a daily current affairs show for 12 years, you have no time to think beyond what's in the immediate news cycle today. What's going on today? What do I need for the show tonight? How do I talk this person into coming on next week? Your day is tied to that. And then the rest of my time is my two kids. So it's it's full on. So the space where you can brew up good ideas for things, it's, it's all taken up. We've spoken a lot during COVID about the great resignation. Oh, and yeah. it seems to me that something similar is happening in the media. I mean, a lot of us are kind of rethinking our day-to-day commitment to news. A lot of us are rethinking the priorities in our life. Is it part of this great resignation thing or part of something a bit different? You know, funnily enough, since I've announced I'm stepping down, a few people close to me have also chosen to take long service leave. And then a number of other friends have said, oh, that's really had a big influence on me. I'm thinking about, you know, what, what should I do? Um, I think it's probably not peculiar to journalists. I think the COVID periods maybe caused a lot of people to reassess. But I think as well, I mean, undoubtedly the COVID period has hastened my departure from 7.30 because uh, I'm so tired because of having to juggle my kids at the same time as doing my job and all of the challenges with running your life. Whereas when you normally get assigned to a big story, you go in, you cover it, and you know that you can leave and go back to your normal life. In this story, your normal life was not functioning like it normally functions. So that made everything much harder. Um I was hoping I could tempt you into song during this podcast, and, and maybe this is the question to get it on. Um, 
I wonder whether you've got any regrets after you're stepping down, and maybe this would lead you into really clear Too few to mention. Um, do I have any regrets? Probably in my 20s not being enough in the moment and enjoying what I was doing enough and appreciating it because like a lot of people, I think when they're young, you know, I was ambitious and in a hurry and somebody more senior would get assigned a story and I think, oh, I own that story instead of enjoying the story, you know, I was actually on. And so I think it, I think I changed a bit on that when I was in Washington and the thing that helped me was um, when you're a foreign correspondent, you know it's for a fixed period of time and so I think you are more cognizant of thinking, wow, look at this beautiful snowy winter, I'm I'm only going to have three of them, you know, and so those kind of things I think force you into the moment a bit more. Um, And so I've gotten better and, you know, even at 7.30, if I have interviewed Paul McCartney or Elton John or whoever, I have always stopped to think, wow, you're a little brat from the back blocks of Brisbane and you're about to interview Paul McCartney. Like, that is really very, very special. And that little brat from the back streets of Brisbane, (laughs) when you got your first gig at Channel 9 for Brisbane (laughs) Extra, you were told you were never going to have a future on television. My executive producer at the time took me aside and said, we thought I'd have a future as a producer because he said, you don't have the voice or the looks to be on television. Which, you know, to be fair, when I look back, I think, oh, God, I would have been rough as anything. And... You know, for, for Channel 9 in that era, probably didn't. So, um, you know, it just shows how far, I guess, TV's come in some ways. And that kind of prompted me to think, all right, well, I can stay here and be a producer, but I feel like I want to be a reporter. And so I applied for a job at the ABC and then went from there. Lee, what's your advice to the next Lee Sales? For someone young, you know, coming through into journalism now, I mean, it's a tough profession. I think I would say... Follow your natural curiosity, as I said, and and try to do stories that interest you. Care about basic craft, like writing concisely, learning what writing for television is. How does that differ for writing for radio, for example? Like those basic craft skills and see if you can learn from people who, who know how to do that. And also to treat the opinions of strangers, particularly anonymous strangers online, as um kind of worthless actually because you don't know who they are you don't know what their vested interest is my grandmother used to say to me when I used to ask like oh you know what does so-and-so think of me she'd go well it's nobody's business what anybody thinks of you and I think that's still true whether it's good or bad because if you believe the good press say in my case people come up to me all the time in the street go oh Lee, you're so brilliant I'm gonna miss you blah, blah, blah. that's that has to be as meaningless as people telling me online oh Lee, you crap you're a slut blah, blah blah because all of it affects your way that you view yourself and the world and it's all kind of irrelevant. What matters is that, you know, you're a good person to your friends, that you you look after your family, that you do the best you can in your immediate circle. That's what really matters, not the opinions of, you know, randoms out there. So that's the other thing I think for young journos, particularly at the moment, when everyone has an opinion on what you do, listen to the opinions of people that you trust and people who matter. In this season of Journo, it's been a real treat to interview two of the journalists who I actually admire the most. Lise Doucette of the BBC, who we spoke to in episode one, and Lee Sales of the ABC. I love their integrity, their compassion, their curiosity, their professionalism. And on top of that, they're also great fun to be around. So my advice to any young reporter listening to this podcast could be neatly encapsulated in just seven words. Be like Lise and be like Lee. Lee, you've, you've had a, an amazing career. You are a, a fantastic ambassador 
for the ABC, for public broadcasting, and our industry as a whole. Congratulations on all you've done Thank you, at 7.30. Luke. Thank you. And we really look forward to what's happening next. Is there a long lunch in our future? Oh, I certainly <laughs> hope so. I'm, I'm a man of more leisure now as well. Excellent, perfect. The Thanks. lovely thing about getting off the day-to-day news cycle is we can stick something in the diary. Exactly. And actually know that we can make it. And that, for me, is one of the great joys. Yeah, that is going to be absolute heaven. All right, I'm holding you to that in the next six months. We're having a long lunch. <laughs> great. Thanks, Thanks. Journo was produced by Deadset Studios for the Judith Nielsen Institute, which supports quality journalism and storytelling around the world. You can find out more about the Institute's programs and events at jninstitute.org. Make sure you follow the podcast on your podcasting app so you're alerted each time we release a new episode. Our executive producer is Rachel Fountain. Our producers are Grace Pashley and Britta Jorgensen. Sound design is by Chrissy Miltiardu. Our managing editor is Kelly Reardon. And our commissioning editor is Andrea Ho at the Judith Nielsen Institute. And I'm... Nick Bryan. Lee, one of the things I've always loved about your journalism is you're a great practitioner of what's sometimes called the Two Kims School of Journalism. So if you were live on 7.30 and something happened to Kim Jong-il, you could deal with that really easily. And if you were live on 7.30 and something terrible happened to Kim Kardashian, <laughs> you could deal with that equally well. Well, that is a very nice compliment. Thank you very much. And I, I probably could. That It means that... I, I, and I think this is the thing that a lot of journalists have. I have an eclectic bag of interests. So I'm really interested in foreign policy, national security, but I'm equally as interested in pop culture. I can find myself down rabbit holes. Like I was listening on the weekend, for example, to Classic FM and they were doing a countdown of the 100 greatest film and television scores in, in history. And so then that put me into a John Williams rabbit hole. And so then I'm Googling, on what instruments does John Williams play? He's the composer of Star Wars and Jurassic Park, one of the all-time greats. Um, and so then I was deep into a John Williams rabbit hole. And I think... That's one of the things I think that's absolutely key in journalism is having natural curiosity and following your curiosity wherever that might lead.